Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we are featuring for you a conversation on the preferred space as it relates to positioning in the wake of the banking crisis and the developments we have witnessed recently, specifically within the U.S. regional banks. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome from our UBS Chief Investment Office, Frank Saleo, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for the Americas, from our partners at Cohen and Steve. We're glad to welcome Bill Scapell, the Head of Fixed Income and Preferred Securities and a Senior Portfolio Manager for the firm's Preferred Securities Portfolios. So with that, Frank, I know you will be leading today's conversation with Bill. Let me pass it over to you. Thanks, Dan. And Bill, uh, thanks for being here today. Uh, It's always great uh, speaking with you about the preferred sector It's been a great partnership uh, over the years with uh, you and Cohen and Steers, so I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks so much, Frank. Yeah, we feel the same. So let me just dive right into it. Um, The preferred sector has been getting a lot of attention lately, of course, because of what's been happening in the banking sector. And banks comprise a large portion of the issue of composition for preferreds. But let's take a step back. Let's review how we got here, beginning at the start of the year now from From our point of view here at CIO, we came into the new year, 2023, with cautious optimism for the sector. And this really began towards the end of of last year, really, with this. The view was um, somewhat of a a near-term caution, longer-term opportunity type of outlook. The uh, optimism really came, especially given the, the year that we were coming off of last year in 2022, that was Clearly, a very difficult year for preferreds. Uh, if we look at one of the oldest uh, indices for preferreds, one of the fixed-rate indices, 2022 was the second worst year on record for that index, and I think it goes back three decades. So, clearly, a, a, a very uh, difficult year in 2022. But on the other hand, valuations as a consequence of that uh, had improved. And uh, secondly, and more importantly, our optimism was driven by the view that the primary headwinds in 2022, uh, namely the epic surge in Treasury rates that we, we saw last year, as well as the uh, aggressive uh, monetary policy tightening by the Fed, uh, the expectation was that those two headwinds would begin to dissipate as we moved into uh, 2023. There was some caution around the timing of the Fed pause. And you know, back in February, markets began pricing in the Fed funds rates uh, going as high as 6%, which clearly would represent further headwinds to the preferred sector. But now that we've had this banking turmoil uh, over the past several weeks since March, really, that does, on the one hand, help alleviate, maybe mitigate some of these interest rate risk factors, but clearly introduces another risk factor. So basically, we're just trading one near-term risk for another. Um, on balance here, we're, we're, we're still cautiously optimistic, or again, more precisely, we still see that kind of a near-term cautious, long-term opportunity type back backdrop. Um, on one hand, valuations have improved a lot more in recent weeks. Uh, the preferred uh, market uh, is posting yields that are pricing in a good deal of risk um, with some yields around uh, 7% on average or more, depending upon the market and the structure and how you measure that yield. And uh, a lot of these risks, that are confronting the market will probably be resolved 12 to 18 months from now. 
But in the near term, over the next several weeks and months, we could see continued bouts of volatility as we head into the second half of the year. So with that setup, Bill, um, what is your perspective? Uh, what is your view with Cohen and Steers, and how does it compare and contrast to our views here? And secondly, as maybe as part of that answer, maybe you could uh, provide your thoughts into what exactly has been going on with respect to regional banks, uh, in your view, and how that might play out. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Frank. Um, <clears throat> I, I'd say that our views are pretty well aligned, quite quite honestly. Um, uh, you know, last year was was uh, such a, a difficult one uh, for all of fixed income, and um, I, I I know the preferred uh, indexes were were uh, down quite a lot, um, uh, but of course, uh, so were um, in corporate bonds and in high yield, et cetera. Uh, but what has occurred this spring has been it felt much more so, I think, uh, specifically in the preferred securities arena. Uh, and um, I agree with you that the way that the market is priced, uh, I, I, th- I think, um, is, is creates a, a, a really attractive buying opportunity. Um, of course, with as with many buying opportunities, the, the question is uh, when to catch the proverbial falling safe. Um, so our, our view on what has occurred so far uh, is that the you know the regionals that did uh, go under that were taken over by the FDIC uh, you know had very specific traits. Uh, some of those traits show up to some extent in some other regional banks as well. Uh, but I do think that, that the specific traits of the, of the regionals that went under were you know, quite remarkable. Um, these were banks that I, that I, I think um, exhibited what, it, what I'll call kind of the, the sins of QE. Uh, three things I would point out. Uh, one, deposit growth. Uh, the, the three banks that, that uh, were taken over by the FDIC had deposit growth between, between uh, 2020 and 2023 of 80% or more. So that is just massive deposit growth. Uh, and it, it occurred, uh, obviously, when we had you know, quantitative easing. Uh, and it compares with deposit growth between you know sort sort of single digits to 18 percent on average um, uh, among some other uh, regional banks. The the second thing was the uninsured deposits. You know they had all this deposit growth, and a lot of it was big deposits. Uh, so 70 percent uh, uninsured deposits, 70 percent plus all, all three of those banks. Uh, and that compares with about 35% on average. Uh, and then the third thing was um, that the capital was quite thin net of mark-to-market on their security books. And, and you know, the, the Fed kind of let down its guard. Uh, in 2019, it relaxed the enhanced prudential standards that it, um, it uh, created after the great financial crisis. Um, it, it relaxed those standards as it related to uh, non-GSIBs, so you know, 
somewhat smaller banks in, in the United States. So some of those banks are still very large, but they're, they're not cheesive. Um, and one of the things that it relaxed was this need to mark your securities market. Well, so what, what the, the banks that went under had in common were, you know, huge deposit growth, a lot of it in uninsured, and then also putting that money to work in, um, in securities that were long dated, such that if you, with, with the ch- change in the cycle and quantitative tightening, uh, if you mark their securities to market, you'd find thin capital. I do think that this will calm. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, the other thing that will come out of this will be much harsher bank regulation, which will be great actually over the long long run for preferred holders and you know we saw that after the financial crisis and that additional level of bank regulation you know should should give us a long runway of uh of, of good credit uh among the banks um uh, for you know several years after this no it's, it's a great point from our perspective i would say this probably i agree it probably will look like an opportunity even in the regional bank preferred at some point, but given the typical investor profile of the preferred buyer, we felt as though it was important for investors to be aware of this potential near-term volatility. We did recently turn a bit more cautious on regional bank preferreds, uh, specifically those Category 4 regionals, as we expect volatility to continue until the negative feedback loop between stock price weakness and deposit outflows is severed. Sort of that fear itself risk that you just uh, alluded to a, a moment ago. We also, in this note that we published last week, made a similar point that you made at the, at the outset that um, the banks that did fail had very uh, unique, distinctive uh, vulnerabilities, not so uh, indicative or aligned with the typical uh, characteristics of other regional banks. I do want to ask you a question, though, about Conan Steers made some headlines recently, evidently or apparently a decision to sell regional banks. It did make some headlines, uh, particularly in the preferred securities world, since Conan Steers is such a, a large player in the sector. Can you just provide a little bit more, more color on that decision and the article that, that was going around? Yeah, I, I think it was a bit of a case of uh, you can't believe what you read. Um, uh, the, um, the author took some comments and I we think made things a little bit more uh, added a little bit more hysteria than than was necessary. Uh, the comments that um, Elaine Zaharasnikas, who, who I work with, uh, made to the uh, reporter were about things that we had done in the past, in the recent past, and um, the article seemed to suggest that we had. You know, essentially sold our regional banks to zero, and um, you know we were we were big sellers, and it came out on a day, one of the many days when regional banks were down. And it just isn't really true. Uh, we we reduced our weights. Uh, we never had very large weights in regional banks, um, uh, but um, in fact, what we're what we are seeing is opportunity in regional banks. Uh, certainly not all of them. Um, and by the way, I, I'll, I'll say in our sort of flagship fund, we have about a three and a half percent weight in regional banks. Um, two and a half of the three are um, banks that are that have more than 500 billion in assets. Um, 
And so, so really only one hundred, only one percent is in what the Fed would call regional banks. For the Fed, regional banks have two hundred fifty billion or less. Um, so really only one percent in these smaller banks. Uh, but um, you know, many of these securities, many many of these issuers and their securities are being painted with the same brush. And you know, when you parse through this stuff. Uh, and, you know, really look at the numbers and understand the organization, you see that it just doesn't make sense. And so um, we, we see opportunities uh, in some of the some of the regional, some of the maybe you'd call them more super regionals. Um, we think that there are actually some really good opportunities. Um, you know, I, and again, I think we're agreed on this. Can't ever say exactly when the perfect time to invest is. Uh, but when we see some opportunity, we start. And um, so, if anything, I look at the regional banks as, as more of an opportunity than anything else at, at this point. Well, with that in mind, in terms of the timing, how do we put the context? Because it sounds like you know that, that it could be an opportunity here, and the market is painting all of regional banks with the same broad brush. But uh, yet, uh, there's only three and a half percent or so exposure that you mentioned. How should we think about that? Is that the typical weighting? You know, the, the fact is, uh, you know, we, we could certainly add to that, <laughs> that, that um, in, investment. Yeah, so it sounds like selectivity, as is typically the case, but certainly in this, uh, in this instance, it's very important. And, uh, you know, I do also want to mention what you alluded to earlier about the legislation. In this report that we published last week, and I should mention I co-authored it with my colleague Barry Macklin, and we did make the point in that report that the likelihood for increased regulation can provide the opportunity for uh, uh, credit premiums, credit spreads in the preferred space to normalize and for prices among regional banks to uh, recover, regional banks' preferred to recover in the years ahead. And we did see this, as you mentioned, in the wake of the Dodd-Frank legislation following the uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about the, the global market. Cohen Steers is obviously a global manager of preferreds, and in Europe, banks issue what are called uh, AT1s or uh, additional tier one capital securities, which are in some ways similar to U.S. bank preferreds, but there's been some volatility in that market as well. Um, specifically, there's been some recent M&A activity among two very large banks in Europe. Uh, and that resulted, and that M&A activity resulted in the complete write-down of the target bank's AT1 security. So can you give us some general color on that particular situation? And then more broadly, how does the recent stress in the U.S. regional bank space compare with what's happening in the market for European AT1s? We think that situation was quite unique to the organization that, that uh, you know, was taken over. Um it was an organization that had you know, difficulties in, over the past few years, things that uh, resulted in it, its capitalization being weak and um, its customers uh, being more concerned about it and wondering about its, its, its term viability. Uh, and we just don't see that anywhere else in Europe. Um, and so, you know, I guess within the United States, in the regional banks, there are, you know, truly varying shades there. Uh, you know, they're, they're in our, on our heat map, and we, and we apply the same kind of characteristics to 
Europe, and when we look at those banks, um, if you took all those European banks and you put them on the U.S. heat map, almost all of them would be green. Uh, so things like, uh, you know, to, to go back to the, the characteristics that we found, you know, most shocking about the, the companies that went under, um, deposit growth between uh, 2020 and 2023, uh, the average deposit growth in, in the European banks is minus 4% over that time frame. Um, and, you know, that compares with 80% growth among the three that, that uh, failed in the U.S., uh, and then, um, you know, uninsured deposits, yes, they, you, you do find uh, banks in Europe with uh, decent-sized uninsured deposits, but, it, but again, uh, the, the average is, is in the 30s, uh, somewhere around there. Um, and, um, and then the, the capital in Europe looks fantastic. Uh, and this is a situation where uh, the European regulators did not let down their guard. Um, you know, in, in the United States, again, for the smaller banks or non-GSIB, uh, the, the regulators allowed them to no longer mark to market, uh, even available for sale securities. And so it didn't flow through their capital. Um, that was not the case in Europe, even Small Spanish Cajas had to mark everything to market. Um, the European regulators also uh, had more stringent standards uh, around uh, interest rate risk. And consequently, when we look at the capital in, uh, in the European banks, and even if we take their securities and mark their securities to market, their capital looks fantastic. And... Um, uh, I'd also mention that uh, earnings in Europe have been just going up. Uh, so in the United States, we've seen, um, you know, in, in the early part of the rate cycle, net interest margins were expanding. But more recently, and particularly since we've had this deposit flight, uh, bank net interest margins um, have not been expanding. Some have been contracting, very modest expansion here and there. Um, but in Europe, the net interest margins are still expanding significantly. And uh, they, we just went through an earnings season. The earnings were well ahead of expectations. Um, in both banking systems, we've seen very little in the way of bad debt. Uh, you know, the, those trends are picking up very slowly, but um, uh, we really haven't seen anything in the way of anything meaningful in the way of uh, uh, very negative bad debt. So uh, all this is to say that um, we think there's some opportunities in U.S. regionals. We actually think that, there, that the opportunities in uh, European banks are even more clear. We think that the opportunities there are very good, very good, uh, and and probably even more proximate than the opportunities in the uh, U.S. regionals. Um, you know, in, in, in so far as in the United States, there there still is some of this, you know, sort of uh, company hunting going on, if you will. Um, 
we really haven't seen much of that in Europe. We, we haven't seen anything in the way of deposit flight uh, there. Well, that's an interesting point. You mean in terms of like what we've been hearing about potential short seller activity, yeah. maybe uh, contributing to the to the type of turmoil we're seeing in the region. Really, I think it speaks to what you just illustrated. It really speaks to the benefit of having that broader opportunity set too. So we've contrasted the U.S. preferred market with the European bank hybrid market. But what's been happening lately in both markets for some investors is bringing back some bad memories of the 08-09 global financial crisis. You know, this is something we talk about a lot, but just maybe as a reminder or a reassurance, what are some of the contrasts with what's happening today compared with what happened back then, particularly in terms of the responses? Because, yeah, like I said, I think it's, it's people are thinking, oh, no, is this, you know, is, are we back to where we were? Right. Yeah, no, it's... um it's a very good uh, question, uh, and and I know in your report you you very rightly quote uh, the Fed's bar. Uh, so Michael Barr is the head of um, bank supervision at the Fed, and I know you, you you quote his report on what happened with the uh, with the, uh, the the institutions that failed in in the United States. One thing I would put, one quote that I'll point out from that, that report is. This one, he says, this experience has emphasized why strong bank capital matters. Well, the proximate cause, in this case, he's talking about Silicon Valley. Well, the proximate cause of Silicon Valley's failure was a liquidity run. The underlying issue was concern about its solvency. And, and that, you know, that gets down to the mark to market that I mentioned. You know, if you mark their, mark their securities to market, they didn't have much in the way of capital. One thing that is very, very, very different <laughs> this time around compared to the great financial crisis is that the banks have a lot of capital. And, and, and you know, it's a, it's a consequence of the great financial crisis that they do have that capital. It's because of the, um, you know, the changes in bank regulation. And, uh, you know, I, if you think back to the like real historic reasons why bank ha- banks had problems, it's because they have bad bad loans, bad debt, uh, and um, we just are not seeing that. Uh, we we have a, a very healthy banking system that has a lot of capital, uh, and um, you know none of the truly systemic organizations are in question. Uh, and, um, consequently, I, I think it's, you know, quite different this, this go around compared to the great financial crisis, uh, where, you know, they did have a lot of bad assets on their, on their balance sheets and, um, you know, were taking a lot, a lot of risks, um, uh, some of which you would say might not be fully incidental to the business of banking, <laughs> um, you know, more on the investment bank. Side and and whatnot, um, and uh, so I I I think that what we're looking at is something you know quite different. And uh, yes, we for all the banks we have to think about earnings uh, because um, you, you know the, there will be pressure uh, from depositors. They're going to have to pay up more. To, to keep those depositors, uh, and um, we have to think about 
uh, you know, the, the live, the, uh, the, the liquidity, um, of the, of the institutions. But I, I don't think that we've got such a, such a challenge there insofar as, you know, I, I, I do think that, um, there are only a very few banks that, that have the, the characteristics that are very similar at all to um, what, what we saw of, of the, um, the, the banks that did fail. Um, so so I, I, overall, I, I feel much better about the banking system um, and, uh, and, 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 and expect that for, for there to be a, a good recovery here. Oh, and I'm sorry, the other thing about the earnings, um, bank regulation is going to cost them again on mm. earnings. And so, you know, we, we've seen a lot of pressure on, on the bank stocks and it doesn't surprise me uh, because bank earnings are going to come down. Bank earnings coming down is not good for preferred holders either. Uh, however, um, I think it's, that's, going to be shorter term bad for preferred holders and the more significant positive, you know, as we've discussed is, is just going to be um, the, the, the much harsher regulation regulatory backdrop, uh, which, which will keep their credit in a much better shape. Yeah. And it could provide a tailwind for years to come. If, if uh, the post financial crisis period is, is any guide. And the other point I think that you make uh, about the liquidity requirements and the capital requirements that I find um, interesting is that those requirements have always been much more stringent for the largest banks, the globally, uh, the global systemically important banks. But in this latest uh, bout of turmoil, even the preferred stocks of those biggest U.S. banks have weakened somewhat, and we're seeing. Uh, 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 yields rise even among those uh, largest, uh, most uh, most highly regulated banks and most capitalized in the U.S. So in terms of, you know, we talk, of, I, I mentioned at the outset, the, the view is near-term caution, longer-term opportunity, but I think that's something that uh, preferred investors can begin to look at now uh, with a bit more uh, confidence is uh some of the opportunities among those larger U.S. banks to the extent that they've been also painted with the same brush as well. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right. I see we've, we've, uh, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time. I want to thank you. Uh, we, I think we have so much more we could talk about, and I uh, would love to have you come back to the studio here and have another call, maybe a follow-up over time, and maybe the, uh, the backdrop will be improved at that point, but we always have interesting things to talk about in the preferred sector. Thanks for being here today. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.